0: The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. We journey through these seven messages of the risen Jesus Christ to the seven churches of Asia Minor. We see that Jesus is unmasking mythologies. He's unmasking the mythologies of those who would stand against his church but he's also, particularly this morning, unmasking the mythologies of the church itself. Let's listen for that as we read God's word together. I would invite you to pull out the Bible and stand. We'll read together Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. You'll find that on the, in the Pew Bible on page 996, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you're visiting, when we finish this text, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's word. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write: These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains. And is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Yet you have still a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them, in white robes. And I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. You may be seated. You may remember ten years ago, 1999, Payne Stewart won the U.S. Open, and then a few months later was a part of the team that won the Ryder Cup in Brooklyn, Brookline, Massachusetts. And then, not much more than a month after that, he and five other passengers boarded an airplane in Orlando, Florida, en route to Dallas, Texas. But as you may recall, that plane never landed in Texas, it just kept on flying. They missed a the radio signal at one point, and air traffic controllers scrambled. A military aircraft, several of them, to be vectored over to try to make radio contract, uh, uh, direct visual contact. They flew in front, behind, and around this plane, and all the pilots said the same thing. Everything looked fine. It was just that they couldn't establish any communication. And they did see that the windows had a frosting on them, a kind of a, a opaque color to them. They would find out later, as... Uh, frozen condensation, ice. And so when the NTSB went back, after this plane dropped from its <laughs> incredible height of 45,000 feet down to the ground in uh, South Dakota, spent its fuel, the NTSB discovered that what had happened was this plane had lost or never gained pressurization. And that literally the air, the wind, the oxygen... Uh, had been sucked right out of the cabin. And they'd just all gone to sleep. They just all died like that. But the plane flew on. And if you had been on the ground playing tennis and looked up, you saw an airplane, you'd not known that anything was wrong. Everything looks well, right on course. All are alive, healthy. It's a sad story. It's a tragic story to think that Jesus Christ wants to describe the church in Sardis in some similar terms. That when he looks at Sardis, he says, I I know what your name is. I I know you're famous for vitality. I, I know that you're known all over the place for being a vibrant church. But I'm looking inside the cabin." And I'm not seeing life. There can be a difference between who we know ourselves to be and who the world knows us to be and how Jesus Christ, who knows all, knows us to be. Jesus speaks of life as relationship. The whole Bible thinks of life not just as mobility, moving through time and space. Oh, an airplane full of dead passengers can do that. Life is about relating to the one who is the author of life, communicating with God. Jesus, when he prays to the Father in the high priestly prayer, John 17, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you. It's not a time and a place, it's a relationship, knowing God. And so the Apostle Paul could describe a particular woman who lived in Ephesus, which is just about 50 miles away from Sardis, as uh, being dead even while she lives. See, she's just unplugged from God. This is a problem not just in the so-called secular world. This is a problem right inside the church, it appears. and Paul would also write to Timothy in Ephesus, "...a day will come when some will hold to the form of godliness." but deny its power you see on the outside timothy there're going to be people who are going to be working very hard in the church there're going to be people who are serving who are activists people who are respectable respectful people who have a fine reputation but on the inside beneath the form they deny the power the power of godliness Well, Jesus would do us no favor to let us continue to cruise through life, half alive. And so today is a sign of grace. He says, I want you to be sure that you're awake to all that I have to offer you. I want you to be sure. And I want to wake you up there. Well, how is that possible? We think of obedience. Well, if I try harder, or if I work more, or if I spend more time in the scripture, more time at the soup kitchen, I mean, maybe I'll come to life. Doesn't seem very probable. Jesus does call us to obedience, but not in the way that you and I expect. It's not obedience of our works. It's the obedience of responding to his works through the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives us two imperatives. I want to look at those with you this morning. The first one is this, verse 2. He simply says, wake up. Now, you've heard those words before. You know, you're on college break and your mom comes into the room there and she's got the honey-do list and uh, she wants you awake. And your eyes are just not complying. There's a resistance. And yet Jesus says, wake up. Seems like a strange thing to say to someone you've just acknowledged is dead. Tell that to Jesus. He doesn't seem to get it. He's got this habit of walking all over the place and coming upon dead people and saying to them, wake up. And it happens, right? Right? He says, get up, wake up, take up your pallet, walk. And so he says to us, this is the first obedience. Wake up. It's interesting that this phrase wake up is is not it's not what you would expect to hear. Uh, It's not come alive. It's actually be watchful. It's the word that you would use to describe the activity of a guard on a watchtower. You know, be vigilant. Scan the horizon. Be perceptive of who you are and your circumstances. Look out, he says. It turns out in uh, Sardis, this would have particular resonance. Sardis is literally a fortress. It's built on an outcropping of earth. Uh, It's kind of a, I guess, a peninsula that sticks out with cliffs all the way around, so that the, uh, the citadel is 1,500 feet above the valley floor below. Virtually impregnable. In fact, uh, it was a proverb in, in, uh, in that day, to capture the Acropolis of Sardis was a proverb for to do the impossible. And it was just known in the popular imagination as a place that could never be captured. And yet, ironically... Uh, in 6th century B.C., at the height of, of Sardis' power. I mean, in the 6th century, Sardis was the center of this whole area. It was the capital of the empire, Lydia. It was a, an economic powerhouse. It was like Ephesus is in the day that uh, Jesus gives this vision to John. Great Sardis. But in the 6th century, Cyrus comes along one day, and feeling secure up on this hill, well, I guess you call them the sardines, uh, <laughs> fail to keep watch because Cyrus sends one brave, sneaky, stupid, I don't know, some guy kind of up a chimney, climbs up this earthen cliff, climbs up a a joint in the wall and into the city and the city falls 300 years later in 214 B.C., Antiochus the Great will again come and in the night will send 15 soldiers up over another place in the wall He'll go and these 15 soldiers will open the front gate and Antiochus' armies will flood in. Be watchful. Don't believe the myth of your own impregnability. As if that weren't enough, just a few years before this letter is written in 17, AD 17, uh, Sardis is destroyed by an earthquake. Pliny says this is the greatest earthquake in memory. And so uh, the, the uh, Caesar has to remit their taxes for five years just so that they can rebuild. This is a city that has learned you can be taken by surprise in an instant. And discover you're not as strong as you thought you were. Well, how do you think about your name? How do you see yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ? Be careful. Do you see your name as defined by your past? And Sardis is a city that's living off the reputation of its history it was once great and what about you is it your testimony your story of coming to faith a year ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago that sustains you more than who you are today is it is it the spin that uh, maybe it's positive spin that we like to say well, we 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 read things in the bible we want them to be true of ourselves and so we think of ourselves as though that were true we promote ourselves our promotion, or is it our performance? We know ourselves to be good because we do enough good, we think, in life. All of these things can be unmasked by the grace of Jesus Christ. And the good news is that Jesus does unmask them. That he says, I don't want hollowness in your life. I don't want inauthenticity. If this text begins with the name, you are dead, Jesus wants to give an invitation because notice how it ends. It ends with a name that is alive. What Jesus will say, I will confess your name to the father and to angels. Just say, he's alive. Sardis is alive. And you and I are too. Well, how do we get there? First thing is we've just got to wake up. You know, the story of the prodigal son, Jesus tells this story to the Pharisees, really. And at the story, the father has determined that his son is as to him dead. You know, he asked for the inheritance early, and he goes off into a distant country. He's looking for the good time, the party life. But there's been an economic crisis, as it turns out, and he finds himself eating at the trough of pigs, this Jewish boy, going unkosher, out of necessity. And he wakes up, the text says, he came to himself. He says, hey, you know, I, I am my father's son. And my father's son eat bread. I'm not a hired servant. I'm not a slave. Wake up. Well, that's only the first step. That only gives us awareness of some dissonance in our lives between who we are today and who Jesus is calling us to be. What's the solution? We find it in the second imperative, and it is this walk with me. Wake up and walk with me, uh, Jesus will invite us. We've heard that Jesus is the one who walks among the lampstands. So we see him as one who's walking through the churches. And he walks through University Presbyterian Church and all the churches of Seattle cross its streets. But now he says, you walk with me. How do we do that? The answer is through his Holy Spirit. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now. He's ascended, but His Spirit is here right now in you, in this room. The very Spirit of the living God is alive in you today if you have faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the power of godliness. It's the Holy Spirit who changes our names. We see that in this text at the beginning, at the end, in the middle. I mean, the seven spirits of God is what Jesus presents to himself at the beginning of this message. He holds not only the churches, but the seven spirits of God and brings his two hands together. So the spirit brings the church to life. It's an odd expression, seven spirits, but it means the fullness of the spirit. Number seven is a number for completeness and fullness. And the fullness of the spirit is present with us here. In fact, at the beginning of the letter, you know, as oftentimes there is with a letter, there's this um, Trinitarian doxology. And the Father is named, and the Son is named, and then the seven Spirits. The fullness of the Spirit for the church today. We see it at the end, and we're invited to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. But in the middle, at the apex of this, this is what theologians call a, a chiasm. The letter chi in Greek is an x. And so, uh, basically, the text presents a mirror image of itself. What it starts with, it ends with. And it has these steps that get closer. And when you have a chiasm, you always want to pay attention to the apex, the point of the triangle. And at that point, we find verse 3. Remember, then, what you received. What have we received? They scratch their heads in Sardis. What have we received? If not, the Spirit. This is the language of the Spirit. Again and again, we see the Spirit is what we've received. John twenty twenty two records the words of Jesus who breathes on his disciples with his breath and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, inaugurating the age of the Spirit in which we now live, people see this and they go, Wow! He says, Repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul, writing later to the church in Corinth, says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God. This is what we have received. Now, how does the spirit? How does the spirit transform our name? There are three ministries, and I want to touch on them briefly. First, we receive the spirit's life. We receive his life. A Jewish hearer. Hearing these words of Jesus of you being dead and coming to life couldn't help but remember the prophecy of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is swept away in the spirit. He's given a vision of a valley, you know, the valley of dry bones. It's as though a military battle had been fought on this great plain generation ago. Because all that's left are bones disconnected, drying, bleaching in the hot Judean sun. And Ezekiel is led to believe that these are the people of God. This is the nation of Israel, dead. And yet the Spirit of God says, Son of man, prophesy. Bring the word of the Lord. Breathe. Call upon the wind. You know that the word spirit in both Hebrew and Greek is the same as the word for wind. Ruach in the Hebrew or pneuma in the Greek. Call upon the wind from the four corners to blow, to breathe the breath of God and Ezekiel watches as the bones are joined together, limb upon limb, flesh upon flesh, the sinews, the skin come, and they live and they stand on their feet a vast multitude. And so also with us, the Spirit will bring us to life if we receive it. Just the chapter before in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel's given a vision. The Lord says, I will put my Spirit within them. I will sprinkle their hearts clean with clean water. By the way, one of the reasons we do baptism by sprinkling in the Presbyterian church. And Jesus will allude to this when he engages that very religiously competent man, Nicodemus, in the night. You know that story. Nicodemus who comes, he's practically a Supreme Court judge in that day. He's very well respected, proficient in all the forms of godliness. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel, but you know nothing about the greatest truth. And that is that the Spirit of God brings life. You don't know where the wind blows, and you don't know where the Spirit is. You must be born again. Let the Spirit bring forth life in your life. That's the first ministry. We receive the Spirit's life. Without that, it's like being an analog TV set in a digital world, you know? (laughs) I mean, the signal is all around you, but you just don't have the circuitry to process it. You're alive physically. But don't have that connection, that relationship that's intimate and vital and vibrant and daily with the Holy Spirit of God. Receive that. Remember what you've received, Jesus says. The second thing we receive in the Spirit is His purpose. You and I are meant to live with purpose. The scripture teaches that, but our experience does as well. How many people have come into my office over the years and said, George, you know, I've been doing this job that I've been doing for years. And I've got to say, I find it very unfulfilling Friends, you and I are not meant to be fulfilled in our work. We're meant to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But the good news is you and I are meant for fulfillment of a purpose. And he sends us out with a purpose to live a life for which you were created, for which only you were created. You have a mission and the spirit is the one who will lead you into it and empower you for it. We see here uh, in verse 2 at the end, he says, I've not found your works perfect. I think this translation is misleading. That word for perfect is fulfilled or completed. It's the same word we see in Ephesians 5.18, it says, be filled with the Spirit. Jesus is saying, I've not found your works fulfilled, because they have not been done in the power of the Spirit. They've been done in the power of your own capacity. And there lies in Sardis, an unfinished temple. Uh, temple to Artemis, and you can still see some of its pillars standing. It was huge, uh, 160 yards by 300, 300 yards, feet, excuse me. And there it stands, not finished after several generations. And Jesus says, hey, your works are not finished because they're not done by me. Jesus will tell his disciples, I want you to gather together and wait in Jerusalem. Acts 1.8, because there you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, Seattle. The story of Acts is the story of a group of cowering disciples who begin in an upper room huddled together for their own safety and security. But 28 chapters later, it ends with this ragtag group of disciples having fanned out across the known world. It's not the acts of the apostles. It's the acts of the Spirit, an extraordinary God in the lives of ordinary people. And you and I, friends, today are living Acts 29. We are the people of whom even our opponents say they turn the world upside down. We receive the Spirit's life. We receive the Spirit's purpose. Finally, we receive the Spirit's transformation. Jesus gives the indication that all is not lost here. I mean, you're not totally dead. He says it's dying, but you have received the spirit and it can be fanned back to life. Strengthen what remains. He says, hey, and you know, there are people among you who are living the spirit filled life. He describes them as having white garments and he holds out the hope for all of us that our garments will likely be white. It's a sign of purity and it's a sign of victory we share in Jesus Christ. I remember having gone on a camping trip a few years ago when our kids were very young. And, uh, you know, they were about three feet tall. And, the, and it had rained. And so they were tromping through puddles and, you know, eating the dirt. It, you know, they picked the marshmallow up off the ground. And you think it's the black from cooking, but it's just, you know, the ground on there. It just covered the sticky stuff. And you and I walk through life and we just pick up these spots. We pick up the hurts, we pick up the bruises, we pick up the shame. And Jesus says, i got a robe for you that's white. It comes from the Spirit. At the end of Revelation, there's a tree. The tree of life takes its waters from living waters that flow from the throne of Jesus Christ. And it bears fruit in its season 12 times a year, and its leaves are healing for the nation. And the Apostle Paul says, if you walk in the Spirit... You let the tree of the Spirit bear fruit in your life. You know the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that Jesus will work in the fiber of your life and in mine as we allow the Spirit to fill, to control, to empower our lives. Wake up, he says. Assess your situation. Walk in me. Receive the life, purpose, and transformation of my spirit. Sometimes it takes a crisis for this to happen. So many times a pastor will sit at the bedside of somebody who's in crisis and see a new openness, a fresh fresh awareness, a moment of circumspection. We become so disordered. You know what it's like to drive down the freeway or to drive somewhere and to go home by accident when you meant to go somewhere else? You're just kind of on autopilot and you know which turn and you're listening to the radio. We can go through life like that. But sometimes in the midst of a crisis, there's a moment of opportunity to stop and reflect. Who am I? Who are we as a church? And I, I don't know whether you've lost your job or about to lose your job or simply know neighbors who have and who are. This is a great opportunity for us as a church These headlines that we read every night as we uh, come home, it's about an opportunity for us to wake up to what's really important, to wake up to who we really are as the people of God. And I hope uh, we won't miss that opportunity. To live authentically. The inside matches the outside. That the name that other people have for us is the same as the name that the Lord Jesus Christ has for us. I think there are two errors one is to be overly uh, pessimistic, the other, overly optimistic. Um, the pessimistic side in me says, gee, I've been prayed about that sin so many times. I've asked for softness of heart. I've asked for freedom from that addiction, and it's not coming. remember a college student who just complained this way to me. and He said, George, you know, it's just not working. I said, well, let me ask you a question. How long have you known Jesus Christ? Well, it's been six months. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm 43 years old. You know, give it some time. I'm still working on it. It's a process. Jesus wants to walk with us through that journey. We live in the tension between the already and the not yet. But it's reality. The Spirit is the, the reality of the good news in our lives. The, uh, the optimistic or the, the pessimistic side of that is, uh, the optimistic side of that, is just to say, you know, I can be good on my own. If I try harder, if I work harder, I can get this thing done. I can be the kind of person that God would respect. He's not trying. You you know, that's as as futile as putting cosmetic on a corpse. Jesus has said that we are dead, but alive in him and by his spirit. That's how authentic living comes. I want to close with a uh, a paragraph from J.B. Phillips, who writes an introduction to the New Testament epistles. This book is called Letters to Young Churches. Phillips write, the great difference between present-day Christianity and that of which we read in these letters is that to us, it's primarily a performance. But to them, it was the real experience. We are apt to reduce the Christian religion to a code or at best a rule of heart and life. But to these men, it is quite plainly the invasion of their lives by a new quality of life altogether. They do not hesitate to describe this as Christ living in them. Mere moral reformation will hardly explain the transformation and the exuberant vitality of these people's lives, even if we could prove a motive motive for such reformation. And certainly the world around offered little encouragement to the early Christian. No, we are practically driven to accept their own explanation, which is that their little human lives had, through Christ, been linked up with the very life of God. Let's wake up and walk with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have made us each uniquely. You have redeemed us by the grace of the cross. And you are with us now to fill us, to make us alive. We pray that you would free us to live before you every moment of the day. To seek you in our prayers, to trust you in our actions, to be guided by you, to speak your words one to another. Fill us, O Holy Spirit, we pray. Free us from the temptation to find obedience in our own efforts. Give us the freedom to be obedient in the strength of your might. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.